This is a special broadcast of Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new LA. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is dedicated to fostering greater intellectual and cultural fellowship across ethnic, racial, and partisan lines. Tonight's program is a conversation with Amy Willens and Nick Goldberg. Amy Willens is an author and former Jerusalem correspondent for The New Yorker. Nick Goldberg is the op-ed editor at the LA Times and a former Mideastern bureau chief for New York Newsday. Husband and wife, novelist and former daily reporter, Willens and Goldberg compare notes and share their sometimes clashing perspectives on Iraq, Israel, September 11th, and the chances of peace in the Middle East. Zocalo is proud to present a conversation with Amy Willens and Nick Goldberg. I wanted to start out by saying that our experience in the Middle East was at a very different time from right now. So we have a sort of long perspective on what's happened. Obviously not long in biblical terms, but you know, as journalists it's a pretty long view. And, and what we've all been through as a country recently since September 11th and what uh, Israel and the Palestinians have been through since the second intifada has been, uh, I think for everybody, shockingly violent. And I wanted to talk a little bit about how we came to Jerusalem, which is where we landed as correspondents for our two publications, and what it was like then, just to give you some perspective for those of you who remember and uh, for those of you who weren't really paying attention then. I went to Jerusalem with Nick because I had been working for the New Yorker already, working on Haiti, a very different place. They decided in a sort of liberal way to let me go be their Jerusalem correspondent. So although it sounds like I you know, came to it from some very high level, in fact, I was a novice. And I was really an innocent at the time. And, and what the Middle East does for people who become involved is it takes you from innocence to experience. I was sort of a wide-eyed romantic when I left Haiti. I thought that there was a good side and a bad side, and you could always find the good side and always know which was the good side. And I certainly learned in Israel that it wasn't that easy. I was also eight months pregnant when I got to Jerusalem with my third child. So that in itself, having a baby in a foreign country was, a, was a, an education. But and she was not pleased to go. Oh, I was so unhappy. And, and the, the, uh, the plum of the New Yorker job did not mean much to me at the moment. But in fact, it was a fabulous thing to be able to do because I was able to spend a lot of time thinking uh, broadly about the situation. And I was also, it gave me the right to go into places where otherwise, as a, an eight months pregnant person and a new mother, I probably wouldn't have had the ability or the desire to go. So it was a wonderful experience for me. And uh, I spent a lot of time in Hebron. And in Hebron, I began to understand a little bit, on a personal level, of the anger. I remember I was there at Purim. and. Um, the Jewish settlers who live in an, a very small enclave and who were at the time and, and may still be this way, or I know they still feel this way, but at the time were very militant, were celebrating Purim in a very open way in the middle of this Palestinian city. And I had a Palestinian guide because I, I was doing that Palestinian side at that moment. And he said to me, look at them drunken dogs. Because on Purim you do, you know, you drink a little and of course the Muslims don't approve of that. And at the end of the day, I thought, oh gosh. At the end of the day, I said to him, you know, Nael, I'm a Jew. And his face fell. He couldn't believe it. And when I came back again to Hebron, a couple of weeks later to continue working on the story, I again reminded him at the end of the day of this. And clearly, it had 
completely, he had just suppressed it because he couldn't like a person who was that. And since we got along, I couldn't be that. And that's when I began to understand that the terrible uh, price that the, the hatred, the national hatred exacts on a, on a personal level. But as I said, I w had this wonderful ability to cross over from side to side and to be among the Israelis and then to be among the Palestinians. And uh, travel was very easy for foreigners. You could just go across at checkpoints. You could go across through Jerusalem, which was not uh, physically divided at the time. And uh, when I had the baby, I then uh, became a little less avid in my coverage of daily events for the New Yorker. And unfortunately for me, two weeks after I had the baby, the prime minister was assassinated by a right-wing uh, Israeli. And I had this baby, and I was nursing the baby, and the editor of the paper called me up and said, you know, you have to cover this funeral. And I said, well, I'm nursing a baby, and I think that the bus trip, while it only goes for like two miles from my house to the, to the cemetery, is going to take five hours because for security reasons. And I can't do it. I can't do it. So we slowly began to part ways. And as I parted ways from The New Yorker, although I continued to contribute little things, I started working on a novel about the situation. And that was entwined with having the baby there because I would see things about children more than probably most people would notice, especially about babies because I had this little one at home and every time I put myself at risk as a journalist, I would think about him. And one time, Nick and I were both covering a riot that was the first protest in which Palestinians shot back at the Israelis at, the, at one of the checkpoints. And I thought, this is insane. We're putting ourselves at risk. Our little baby is at home. What's going to happen? And uh, that was when I began to think as I ducked out of the crossfire about babies at checkpoints. And my whole book is about what happens after a, a child gets into medical trouble at a, at a checkpoint. But it, it's interesting to me to have had then and then to have now there. I went back to Jerusalem in uh, January to write a travel piece uh, for a Condé Nast traveler. And they called me up and they said, we want you to write this travel piece. And I said, they're in the middle of a war. You know, We're having a war in Iraq right nearby. You're never going to run this piece. I tried so hard to dissuade them. Nick kept saying, just take the assignment. Go, go. You know. So finally, I did go. and. Uh, it was very difficult for me because all these places where I had had easy transit from one side to another were now blocked off. And I saw the fence or the wall um, in various places, including right through what I considered my hometown in my free zone, which was Jerusalem. And I watched Palestinians. The wall was just going up through Jerusalem. And I watched them climbing over its construction until it was too high to be climbed over. And I went back to the Dome of the Rock it's my middle son's favorite building in the world, and I wanted to see it again and go inside. It's very beautiful on the inside. But I wasn't allowed in anymore. They said to me, the Muslims who guard it, old men in robes, said, no, you can only go in to pray. And I didn't think that I could convince them that I was going in to pray. So I, uh, I didn't get to see that. And I just, for me, it was stark evidence about how Nick and I were there in this moment of calm, a little window that was called Oslo, where there was this feeling of inevitability, that peace was inevitable and that compromise would be achieved. And so much in the past years, it's felt that that's not the case. 
and that that was some kind of golden dream that we were living through that that was false. But uh, perhaps I'm just an American optimist, but I still think that it has to be an inevitable thing. One thing I find very disturbing right now, and I don't know if Nick is going to talk about this, is I just read that there, they took a, a poll and 64% of Israelis now say that they believe their government should encourage the Arab citizens of Israel to leave the country. And that combined with, with Sharon recently saying that by 2005 there will not be a single Jew in Gaza, I find this the racial demarcation very disturbing, especially in view of what I consider to be the Zionist ideal of Israel, which is a Western democracy that's not necessarily, you know, only Jews, even if it is a Jewish state. It wasn't meant to be only Jews. And the idea of sort of the, the gentle ethnic cleansing on both sides of the fence is to me a disturbing harbinger of the future for Israel. But I wonder what my husband thinks. <laughs> well, let me just start by saying that when Amy and I met, we were both young journalists. We were both working at Newsday at first before she left to go work for Time magazine. And I told her that you know my, my dream was to become a foreign correspondent. And she said, well, that's all fine. But I'll tell you, the one place I will never set foot, I will never travel to, is Israel. It is too dangerous there. I'm not going into harm's way. So when I came back to her, you know, six or seven years later and said, they've offered me this job in Jerusalem. Do you want to come? She said, absolutely not. There's no way I'm going. And eventually I, I finally convinced her to go. The worst part was I said, okay, I'll go, but I will not go anywhere near that West Bank because I didn't know. I was lobbying to go to Jerusalem. I didn't realize this is the West Bank. The West Bank is in Jerusalem. I had no idea of the, even the, the broadest geography of it. I just knew that was a dangerous place. She came and she was a good sport and she developed a career from it and she wrote a book from it and it was all a big success. And then a few years later I told her, we were living in New York, and I said, Amy, I just got offered this great job. We have to move to Los Angeles. And she said, absolutely not. They have earthquakes there. So it was more of the same and now she's very happy here. I'm constantly well. being hazed by my husband. My experience in the Middle East was utterly different from her experience, and let me, let me tell you a little bit why that is. Although we came home some evenings to the same apartment, to the same children, to the same dining room table, my job was so completely different from hers that our experiences were very different. And the biggest difference is that I wasn't covering Israel. I worked for a smaller paper, Newsday, which didn't have that many correspondents, so my job was to cover the entire Middle East. So not only did I spend time in Israel, but I was, I was all around. And my job basically was to wake up every morning and see what was going on. And you know, I had this huge swath of territory. One day, 17 Greek tourists would be killed in Egypt and I would fly to Cairo and the next day there would be an assassination of a Hamas leader when his cell phone blew up in Gaza and I would have to get on a bus and travel back from across the desert from, from Egypt to Gaza and then there'd be an attack and... I'm just remembering all the old resentments. <laughs> she was not. I was away, I was away for long periods of Three time. Children. There would be uh, you know, a missile attack in Pakistan and Afghanistan by the Americans responding to the, uh, the blowing up of, of uh, embassies in Tanzania and Kenya and I would have to go to these places. You know, one day I would, uh, you know, the, the Israeli Mossad would try to kill a Hamas leader on the streets of Amman and we would rush over there and then they, they freed Sheikh Yassin and you'd have to rush back to Israel. So it was really a, a tremendously huge 
territory that I, that I was covering. Um, I spent about 50 or 60 percent of my time in Jerusalem and the rest of the time I was on the road. As Amy said, the period we were there was, in, in retrospect, a relatively quiet period. It was between the start of the peace process and the collapse of the peace process. It was between the end of the first war in Iraq and the beginning of the most recent war in Iraq. By the way, I mean, we both say it was a relatively calm time, and it was, but to people who came from this country and were living in Jerusalem, it didn't seem calm at the time. And, and there were uh, bus bombs frequently, and it would be during when the children were coming home from school. It was, a scare, it was as scary as I thought it was going to be, but I didn't know how much scarier it could become. Well, that was my point, in part, is that it felt, it, it seems in retrospect to have been peaceful. It's very hard to remember the news events that occurred between 95 and 98. Uh, there were even days when the Middle East didn't make it onto the front of the newspaper. But here are some of the stories between that period that I covered. The assassination of Rabin was the first thing that happened when we got there, which uh, it really, it, you know, just reading the paper today, when you read about these threats from uh, right-wing Jews against Ariel Sharon, it's, it's very reminiscent. And at that time, there was a real feeling that, uh, that right-wing threats to Israeli leaders had been ignored. So I think that's why this is having such a uh, resonance now. Um, we covered Israel's Operation Grapes of Wrath against Hezbollah in uh, southern Lebanon, which led eventually to the the withdrawal of the Israelis from the occupied zone in Lebanon. I covered famine in the Sudan, which is a story that, that's back in the news again in recent weeks. Uh, at that time, Muslims in the north were battling Christians in the south. Today, it's still true. I covered the election of uh, Khatami in Iran. He was a moderate, and his election dramatically changed the calculus of uh, political strategy in, in the Persian Gulf in a way that that's had a tremendous impact ever since. Uh, I covered a wave of very bloody and deadly Islamic uh, fundamentalist violence in Algeria, which has calmed down a bit since then. Uh, I covered Saddam Hussein's decision to stop cooperating with UN weapons inspectors and ultimately to expel them, which led in a, in a very direct way to the war we're in today. I covered, and, and Amy covered as well, the emergence for the first time of Hamas suicide bombers who really hadn't existed in any real sense before 1995 and who blew up their first bombs in Jerusalem and Tel Aviv very shortly after we got there and which led ultimately over time to the collapse of the peace process as we knew it. I covered the bombing of uh, 17, the bombing death of 17 Americans in Dahran, Saudi Arabia by Islamists. I also covered the move of Osama bin Laden from, from Sudan to Afghanistan and then ultimately his bombings in uh, Nairobi and Tanzania, which again were the first, really the, the first true warning that these groups were turning their focus away from, from attacking Saudis and, and opposing the Saudi regime and were intend, instead going to focus on Americans. And I guess what, part of what I'm trying to say is that when, when you read about this in, in American newspapers, you sort of see the big headlines. You see things jumping from event to event to event, and it's very hard to, to follow what's making things happen and why, why this reaction is coming to that event or why that event was a reaction to the previous one. But when you're there covering it, you're sort of watching history be made day by day and you can see how little events drive the bigger stories so that a, you know, a bus bombing on a Jerusalem street leads to a Hamas reprisal, which in turn leads to, uh, Netanyahu, being to Netanyahu ultimately being elected and stopping the peace process. And it's all, it all makes a lot more sense when you, watch it, when you watch it day to day the way we did. And the other thing you can see when you do the job that, uh, 
that I was doing is you can see how all the stories in the region are interconnected and how the collapse of the peace process really empowered Saddam Hussein and Osama bin Laden. You could see how Israel's withdrawal from Lebanon ultimately affected whether or not it was going to withdraw from the West Bank and Gaza. You could see how King Hussein and after him King Abdullah in Jordan, who are in a very unstable country, their, their, uh, their rule is, uh, is, is tenuous at all times, and they really have to walk this very careful road between Israel on the one hand and Iraq on the other hand, which are the two great powers on their borders which drive everything they do. And whenever you would have an event in either of those bordering countries, the, the king of Jordan would have to respond to it. Uh, same is true about Saudi Arabia. You could see how Saudi Arabia's increasing relationship and increasing closeness to the United States was, was driving the, the rise of al-Qaeda, even in those early days before we all really knew what it was and who they were. Nevertheless, even as all these things were percolating, it was, as Amy said, really a golden era, not just in Israel, but all around the region. I could travel quite freely. These were the days before Danny Pearl, who was a friend of mine, was killed. We felt that we could walk with some impunity into any country that would give us a visa, and we could go and we could talk to, to militants. We could, you could talk to people on street corners. We I could had this sudden realization the other day, you know, how we've been watching all these beheadings. I mean, I have never seen one, frankly. I don't watch it. I can't stand to turn it to see it on the computer. But I realized that, you know, they beheaded Danny Pearl, and that made journalists a lot more scared in the Middle East. And then I was thinking, you know, with these guys having immediate access over the internet to video, they don't really need the media anymore. And that puts journalists in a far riskier position because if you're unnecessary, then you suddenly become just another American. And I find that very scary for the press corps there. I mean, we always felt when we walked into a meeting with the head of Hezbollah in, uh, in Beirut or the head of Hamas in, in Gaza, we always felt that we were some special category of people. No one and would safe. ever. We were safe because they needed us. They understood us. They understood that this was the only way to get their message out. And indeed, many of them did understand that. At the same time, it's changed dramatically. And many of the people, you know, I mean, Danny Pearl was killed. And also, so were many of the people we used to interview. I mean, we used to go regularly to see Abdelaziz Rantizi in Gaza and Sheikh Yassin in Gaza, both of whom were killed. I had people who actually became friends in Iran who were dissidents, opponents of the regime, who were found you know, stabbed to death a couple of years after I left the region. It, it really has become terribly dangerous. My friends who are covering Iraq now say, you know, it's not the same. I, was, I went back to Iraq in November. I'd against been, my wishes. Against Amy's wishes. I had been there, I'd been there several times before the fall of Saddam Hussein. I went back in November, and even at that time, you could still travel, you could still talk to people on the street, you could still go out to, to Karbala, you could go to Najaf, you could go all over and talk to people on the street. Now I, I email with my friends who are there, they say, we can't, we can't go out, we can only go under very special circumstances. We send people, you know, we send local Iraqis to go out and do the interviews and then we debrief them when they come home. So, so things have really changed dramatically. Which means that the news you get is a little bit different from the news you could get if the press corps were feeling freer and less uh, threatened, sadly. So just two final points. First of all, I'm, and I'm happy to talk about this afterwards if anyone wants to, I'm a strong defender of American newspaper reporters in the Middle East. I think it's extremely hard territory to cover. It's very hard to remain objective. It's very hard to remain unbiased. It's hard to cover, it's hard to cover it fairly. And I know that I spent a tremendous amount of time trying to do that, trying to learn the issues at the same time, trying to remain objective, trying to see things uh, 
clearly and not through the prism of what, of what all the different groups wanted you to think. It's a, it's a terribly passionate and intense place. It's a place where you feel like every decision you make, every word you write, everything that happens is a matter of life and death and that things hang on it all the time. So it's hard and I really, I really believe that a lot of us tried very hard to report the story the way we saw it under tremendous pressure from Jews in the United States, from Arabs there, from letter our writers. newspapers, from letter writers, from all kinds of people. And we didn't always succeed. Uh, you know, newspapers make terrible mistakes and we do things that are wrong and we get our history wrong and we lose perspective. And, and newspapers have a tendency to, to put someone in and just when, just when a reporter is learning their way around, as I was after four years there, they yank you out yeah, and they put someone else Yeah, but you know, I, I sort of believe in that too because I've seen journalists who remain and it's very hard not to become a part of the story and to become a partisan. If you're there for too long, I just think it's a, it's a really serious danger to your objectivity even though it certainly increases your knowledge. And the final point I want to make is just that the, you know, the, the four big stories that were, that were going on when I was in the Middle East and which were all interrelated are still the same ones that are, that are the story today and are still in many ways the same ones that were there 20 years ago and 50 years ago and 100 years ago in, in one form or another. There was, a, there was some, the, the roots of these problems were all there. But the stories that were going on when I was there were the growing anger towards the United States Mixed, mixed with respect and envy, but, but an increasing feeling with, with every month that we were there that people were angry and that the United States was, was taking positions and doing things, whether it was the sanctions on Iraq or what, what Arabs perceived as the unfair treatment of the Palestinians during, during the peace process. That anger was growing at every moment. Uh, second of all, the peace process itself was, of course, a huge story. Third, Iraq and what would become of the regime of Saddam Hussein was an enormous issue from really ever since the previous Gulf War and before. And global terrorism and, and the emergence of Osama bin Laden, who was someone I had never heard of when I, uh, when I arrived in the Middle East, but heard an awful lot about by the time I left there in 1998. We can open it up to questions. I was curious how you, how you would directly link the slow failure of Oslo to the war in Iraq today. How exactly does the deteriorating situation in Israel and Palestine push that toward a dangerous brink? I think that Americans tend to underemphasize how important the events of, of Israelis and Palestinians are to the rest of the Middle East. I think Americans have been, have been told that, that the Arab-Israeli conflict is something that, that Arab leaders use with their people in order to keep them from fighting among themselves or in order to keep the leaders in power and that no one in the Arab world really cares about the Palestinians. If they really cared about the Palestinians, wouldn't they have, wouldn't they have created a homeland for them? Why would, them they have, why would they have left them in refugee camps for 50 years? It's ridiculous. That said, I believe that the Arab-Israeli conflict is an enormous source of day-to-day -day rage and frustration. It's become the lightning rod for all anger against against the Americans. Maybe it's been used by, by Arab leaders. Certainly it's been used. Certainly it's a, it's a wedge issue. It's, a, it's something everyone can rally around. But over time, it's become extraordinarily important. And there is pan-Muslim sentiment and there is pan-Arab sentiment. And people do believe that my Muslim brother across the border is just like I am. And so when the peace process collapses, when people come to believe that the Israelis are not going to give back the West Bank and Gaza, 
they become furious. And it's certainly true that if you read the coverage of these stories in the Arab media, it is inflamed and it is exaggerated and it is it just becomes a, a horrendous story. And the anger that you see, I mean, even today, if you go, when I was there in November, if you were on the street in Baghdad talking to people about why are they so angry at the United States, they don't only say we're angry at the United States because they're here occupying our country or because they can't turn the electricity on or because they got rid of our revered leader, Saddam Hussein, or whatever argument. They say, and what about the Palestinians? It's an enormous day-to-day -day issue, and in my opinion, until it's solved, it's not going to be possible, really, to have a healthy relationship with the rest of the Arab world. The only Islamic voice I seem to hear via our media is the uh, extremely fundamentalist or the militants. Is there another Islamic voice? And if there is, what are they saying? Well, I agree with what Amy said earlier. I believe that, just going back to Israel for a moment, I believe that there's going to be peace between between Israel and the, and the Palestinians in the, in the not too distant future. And I believe that because everything I learned when I was there suggested that both sides on this conflict are ready for peace, are eager for peace, are tired of the war, and that the, that the debate has been hijacked by the people who are willing to you know, strap bombs to themselves and the people who, who talk and scream the loudest. And that's certainly true on the Arab side, on the Palestinian side, and it's true in other countries right. as well. And it's true on the Israeli side. Religion has hijacked the political debate, and that's been a huge problem right in the center of Jerusalem. But I believe that there's a huge portion, a huge silent majority of the Muslim population that, that is, you know, they're, they're swing voters in a sense. They get angry at the Israelis, you know, support for Hamas will go up a little bit, it'll go down a little bit. Things happen, people but change, just as is, the Israelis change. It's still true to say that, that it is hard to hear the voice of moderation among the Muslims today, especially in the Middle East. I mean, there are Muslims in America, certainly, who speak out in a moderate way. But over there, it's hard to hear it. I, I went to a conference on the media and the Middle East in Copenhagen, sponsored by the UN, and I had to say there that although there were two Israeli journalists there who have been very sympathetic and, and extremely uh, uh, committed to reporting from the Palestinian side, I had to say that I have not heard of any, of any Palestinian reporter coming and going to the site of a bus bombing and just reporting quite brutally what happens when the bombs go off. So I think that there's a failure there, but what, what has really happened because the violence has gotten so awful there is that it silenced moderates. It silenced many, many people, the moderates among the Palestinians and the leftists among the Israelis. So it, the fact of the violence has, has really made everyone more extreme. And I think that's something that you see, too, when you don't hear those voices. Moderation also means a different thing among Palestinians. I mean, I don't think the people who I'm talking about being moderate, you might not agree are right, moderate. Exactly. I'm talking about people who don't support bus bombings as, as a way of achieving their political aims. I'm not saying that there's a, a moderate group of Palestinians who want to cede the settlements to, to Israel or who are willing to give up the city of Jerusalem. I mean, the Palestinians are a determined group of people whose political goals are pretty clear and pretty well set out. So I'm not saying there are a lot of people ready to make those concessions. I'm just saying that there are a lot of people who are willing to not resort to, to terrible violence right. and, and who, who would don't like support to see the, the end of it. And, and I think, just finally, as Amy said, I mean, 
you know, when you have collaborators or people who are deemed to be collaborators being murdered in the streets, it's very hard to speak out. When the entire process gets completely taken over by radicals and militants and people who scream loud and, and blow people up, it, it silences people. But that doesn't mean they don't exist. You've been listening to a special presentation of Zocalo, a conversation with Amy Willens and Nick Goldberg. The Los Angeles Public Library and Zocalo, a cultural forum for the new L.A., present this monthly lecture series. Zocalo, which means public square in Spanish, is a nonpartisan, multi-ethnic forum providing an opportunity for intellectual fellowship in Southern California. Sponsored by 89.3 KPCC, the Los Angeles Times, and the Latino Weekly, Zocalo is made possible by the Library Foundation of Los Angeles. For more information or to listen to past shows, please visit our website, ZocaloLA.org. Thanks for joining us.